Podcast markets with Sean Hackett. Sean is with Hackett Financial Advisors out of bitterly cold Boca Raton, Florida. I guess for Florida, it's probably cold, but everywhere else in the world, it'd be balmy. So, Sean, how you doing today, bud? I'm doing really, really good. We're uh, we're we're in a blustery, blustery 65 degrees and rain today. So we're we're get your pockets out, folks. Hooded sweatshirts, the whole nine yards. (laughs) We're pretty depressed right now down here. Really depressed. We're gonna have an outbreak of pneumonia here before too long. You guys are going crazy. All right, man. Well, fortunately for this show and, and what we've been doing here for the last year or so, there's been no lack of news to talk about, right? So, and this is uh, this is absolutely no different than, than what we've seen here in the past year or so. So, I guess the best place to start is you know NAFTA is basically expected to pass the house today, um, assuming that they can get the hangover from the impeachment trial yesterday all all figured out. But I mean I guess I guess you're gonna go back to work today and get some get some NAFTA stuff done. Uh or USMCA, I'm sorry. Uh get that taken care of. Uh the Chinese and the US are just on the cusp of of signing a piece of paper that they're gonna do all kinds of good stuff with. And then on top of all that, um China is actually still coming to the table to buy um more and more protein from the U.S. So I guess let's start with NAFTA or NAFTA or USMCA and, and see what that looks like where we're going with there. That's kind of a long-awaited thing that we've been waiting for here for the past three months for sure to get something signed. You know, we've, everybody's kind of ratified except us, and we're going to kick it down the down the road here. It sounds like today, but I feel like of all the things that we have kind of on the table right now when it comes to trade, uh, USMCA is going to be that one. I think that's really going to help solidify what's happening in our markets and give a, a good stable um, kind of launching pad moving forward. So what's your thoughts on what we see with USMCA and, and how that's going to affect the markets? Well, I mean, we must realize that if one looks at how much we sell to Mexico and to Canada combined, I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. So to solidify that demand and to put it structurally in that that demand is going to continue to be there, um, and it's not going to go away uh, easily to somebody else. It's a, it's a huge long-term benefit. I don't think it means that we run the market up to four and a half on it, but, but it means that we can, be, we can put to rest the concern that we might lose our, you know, our North American solid, strong demand base that we've counted, counted on for so many years. Uh, in the long run, that's a good thing. So that means to me, any breaks in markets that we get in grains or in you know, hogs or anything, there's going to be steady, consistent demand from the North American buyer because of this agreement. And that's very, very positive um, in the long run. But, but I don't see that being, okay, now corn's going to four and a half because the Mexicans are going to come in and buy, you know, up the wazoo. It just means that this buying is going to be there for the long haul and it's going to continue to maybe prevent the market from going lower than it might have gone otherwise. And that's a good thing. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be a good stabilizer, I think, as, as we kind of, as a almost like a crutch. You know, we're going to have that good solid platform. We know we're going to sell wheat to Mexico. We're going to sell pigs to Mexico, corn, everything else, same back up into uh, into uh, Canada when it comes to the dairy side of the stuff. So, I mean, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of 
back and forth stuff here as we as we move forward and and, and kind of head down that line going into 2020 here. <clears throat> right. Also, Casey, when you think about the, the deal we signed with Japan, I think that's another similar situation. Yeah. We sell a ton of stuff to Japan. We got a deal done with them. And that means they're also going to be a consistent long-term buyer that we can rely upon. That's going to be there. The Chinese want to play games. Price get cheap. They're going to be there. So it's really, really good because it puts a backstop. To me, it's almost like, I don't want to say government program, but it's a, it's kind of like a, 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 an under, you know, kind of like a support mechanism under the market where there's going to be very strong state demand on breaks and prevent the disaster from happening like we were seeing over the last couple of years when that was unsure and the, and the Chinese were playing games. I think we've taken that off the table now. That's yep. good. Absolutely. All right. So now let's jump into the Chinese here. So we've, we've talked about China here for the past two years, I guess, 18 months, something like that. And going back and forth and sounds like the U.S., China, we have a deal, but we don't have a deal done yet. So no one signed the, signed the paperwork yet. Sounds like they've agreed to about 50 to the $50 billion number. I've heard a couple different numbers based on like a $27 billion base and then 30 some million on top of that. Um, <clears throat> do the math somewhere between 50 and 55 billion over the next two years to get there. Uh, but there's always like, well, you know, we said that, but then, you know, there's always those things that kind of pop in there. Um, this is probably the most explosive news. If this actually does get signed and China does show up to buy stuff, obviously they're going to come buy as much pork and beef and chicken and fish and everything else they can get from us because they have to. Um, I kind of struggle to think they're going to be buying a whole lot of running up our grain prices just for the sake of running up the grain price. So I guess talk about your reflection on what we see happening with Chinese trade and, and kind of what this deal means to you. Well, the most important thing for me that I'm looking for clarity on is. Good. Uh, what kind of um, accountability will we have with this deal? So let's just say we start phase two uh, negotiations. And they don't go well. What does that mean? Right. What happens to this deal? Is this divorced from that? Is it connected to that? If phase two doesn't go well, does this whole deal get scrapped just like that? I mean, I'd like to know how do, how does this deal get enforced? You know, what kind of mechanism is in place to make sure this deal actually continues, even if they are start arguing over phase two, or Trump gets off, you know, wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and doesn't like. What he's seeing. I mean, that's what I'm really not sure about. I have no doubt in the beginning, Mr. Casey, they're going to buy some stuff. Okay. And I think what they're going to do in the beginning, as you just said, they're going to buy what they need as much of it as they can to try to meet those requirements. They'll buy every bit of pork, beef, chicken. I believe they're going to buy a lot of U.S. ethanol. I think they absolutely need it. They have to have it. It's, a, it's something that they, it's part of their long-term policy of increasing ethanol domestically. Um, indirectly, of course, it helps the corn market, but I think they're going to buy those things they really need and buy as much of it as they can first to get those numbers up, and then they'll fill in the blanks underneath w w with whatever they have to do to get that minimum target, whatever that minimum target turns out to be. Um, you know, so so that's what we're trying to figure out is what exactly are they committing to doing here? Uh, but in the meantime, at least it says they're going to be a buyer uh, in the market for a little while. Uh, as a good faith measure for, let's say, probably the next three to six months, and at a time when we have the USMCA and the Japanese deals kicking in with demand, it, it says that our downside risks in grains 
in a lot of U.S. ag should be fairly contained for a while um, and could, could potentially have some large upside if Mother Nature gets back involved with South American weather or with the U.S. planting season. So, so it's a very positive thing in the long run, but I don't think it's going to be this, you know, out of the gate, limit up, move on soybeans uh, kind of a thing. But, but, but I think it sets the stage for that if we can get some other drivers here, like a, the currency falling apart, the real taking off, or Mother Nature getting involved. It, it sets the stage for a powder keg to be set off here, you know? Yep. No, I agree. So uh, there's an article I'm reading here out of my, my pro farmer report that I get in the morning. And there is a uh, um, Brazilian production is likely to surge to 114% of corn-based ethanol. That could have a big effect. I mean, I know they their primary ethanol source is sugar cane um, and what they have. But if they're going to start doing a lot of stuff with corn into, as far as corn ethanol goes, there's got to be some that, that should alleviate some pressure on the market, I guess, when you start looking at just carryover stocks and what that looks like. So I guess what's your thoughts on that and, and where do you see that? How do you see that affecting the market? There's three dynamics in South America that make us very bullish, at least on the corn market. First of all, the, the politics in Argentina are such they've increased export tariffs on wheat, on corn, um, and that means that they're planting less of those and more soybeans. That means less corn production, first of all. Second of all, uh, we know based upon uh, the overselling of the Brazilians uh, to the Chinese during this period when we were out of the you know out of the deal, that the Brazilians are short of corn. They're actually buying a huge amount of corn from Argentina because <laughs> they sold too much of it, uh, which means there's even less corn available for Argentina to sell, and that means Brazil's out of the export market. That's why our exports all of a sudden are starting to look a whole lot right. better. All the time. And then uh, thirdly. Uh, we know that animal feeding units in Brazil are going crazy because their prices got, have taken off. They're, they're you know, ramping up pork production, ramping up beef production, ramping up chicken production to sell to the Chinese so long as ASF whole of protein to, you know, deficiency needs to be met. All that extra demand means less exportable supplies in the upcoming season. This is all very, very positive that the U.S. export market is going to come back to life and we think it's going to stay alive all year in the upcoming season. And it's going to start removing these ending stocks that we think we have, because right now the USDA has a very low number for exports for the U.S., and we just think they're way off. We think they're going to have to increase those numbers significantly. If we would have some weather issues during the safrina corn crop, which is really what Brazilians like to export, mm-hmm. it could be a wild you know, January, February to March if, if Mother Nature gets involved. Maybe Mother Nature's fine. But if, but all I'm trying to say is the risk to the the risks of the corn market we see are to the upside, not to the downside right now, based upon everything that we see. Soybeans, it's a, it's pretty mixed. We we really got to bet on that the Chinese are going to continue to buy a lot from us because it looks like us South America is going to produce more soybeans, and they're going to you know exports there are going to continue to be very strong. So we're we're a little we have less conviction for the soybean market than we do for the corn market at this point. So yeah. Yeah, so to that point, you know, I'm I'm reading a, an article here about, you know, you talk about ramping up pork production and stuff like that. You know, it looks like the, the Chinese are, are looking to sell an additional 40,000 metric tons of frozen pork from their state reserves um, uh, on December 23rd, and they're going to open that up to the, to the Chinese market. So if they're dipping into strategic reserves of of, uh, of pork, of, of, of basically boxed pork, um, 
they, they've got to be in a, in a real bad way when it comes to what they're actually looking for. And that's a strategic, strategic reserves, Casey, is you have, it's, that's, that's a desperate measure. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. That's desperation. Yeah. So that tells you that's a, and that's another big thing too, is that you start running out of, when people are used to eating a certain thing or having a certain amount of diet or, or a certain amount of food or a certain type of food, you start running to some political issues when you start, you know, political unrest and those kind of things start playing in the factor. So this China situation uh, is, is a bigger deal than, than what we thought. And, um, you know, China can drop the, the ter- tariffs on their, on the pork anytime they want to and bring as much pork and beef as what they want to into the country. So it's a, uh, it's a good thing. So as you start seeing this happen, how, how have the markets responded to the, uh, the pork market? How has it responded to what this news with, with China and USMCA here in the last couple of days? Well, we have to remember, we have record, all-time record slaughter going on in the U.S. Yeah. And we're, 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 finishing off, we're finishing off this incredible fourth quarter supply situation, and we've been just, just – you know, selling everything we could to everybody who would be a buyer. And, and what's amazing is, despite that amazing slaughter and, and available supply, we've been chopping through, and the market's been working its way higher over the last month through that supply. So think of that. This massive supply, and we're grinding our way higher. And now we get into the first quarter and the second quarter, and we're going to fall off significantly in U.S. pork production. And I don't see this demand going away. It's only going to get stronger. So we're setting up for a spike trade, a parabola. We've talked about this in the past. Right. We saw it in China, we saw it in Brazil, and we are the last one that's going to experience the pork price parabola, I mean, the hog price parabola. And we think it could be within 30 days of happening. And when, it, when you look at these charts, as you have and I have, it goes from nothing and boom, it's just straight up over the next 30 days. Yeah. Set up for. Everyone's given up on this trade. Everybody thinks it's, it's hogwash, it's never going to happen. Now is the time for it to happen because no one believes it will. So, right <clears throat> yeah, there's a. This is probably one of the most interesting things to watch, and the other part of this too that when it comes to the protein complex is that the the choice box beef. When you start looking at that, that continues to struggle. And I guess give me your give me your back what your thoughts are on that. I mean, that seems to be with as much stuff that we see happening, uh, what's going on like you know, with the China thing and, and what we see happening with the USMCA. You would think that there would be some some t- some pressure be taken off of that of that box beef market. We think that's coming, Casey. But 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 we're at a seasonal period where we lose a lot of holiday demand. Uh, you know, we we tend to see weak market. Uh, you know, weak beef demand around this time of the year. Uh, we had a huge amount of you know beef come to the market in the fourth quarter. I mean, it, it's a pretty significant. Um, and uh, and we've had this big run up. We've had this big run up. Due to the uh, Tyson fire, that's now going to come back online, and and so there's just uh, and you know, we got up towards a significant technical resistance on the April contract, one in twenty thirty. We're during a period of that's typically more quiet, lower trade. It's just a rest. We don't we don't think this is a a big deal. It's just a resting period, a consolidation period. When you look at that chart, Casey, it's a V. If that was ever a V bottom, it was a straight down, straight back up. We're finally uh, calming down a little bit. We think once we get out of the holiday season, get into the first month of January, that demand's going to fire back up. The supplies are going to come off in the U.S., and we're going to see that uh, trend emerge back up again. But we do think it's going to be a quiet time for probably another two to three weeks before we can get out of this this 
sideways trade consolidation that we've been in, which, which is due for. We were due for the market to kind of rest and let everybody catch up to what's going on here. Yeah. One other thing I want to head on before we close this down is I've been watching the sugar market, and we've, been ta- we've talked about it a couple times on here. And just because of where I'm at here in Western Nebraska and how important sugar beets are to our, our neck of the woods, um, I think the sugar thing has gotten to be a bigger deal than what we even talked about to start with. I mean, it seems like what we saw for failures around the world in the sugarcane marketplace uh, on the world market, on the world scale, has actually gotten to be worse than what people actually anticipated it being. And same with the sugar beet harvest, even in Europe and even in um, what we see happen here in the States. Um, so I guess talk about the sugar market and, and really looks like to me, we're, we're kind of setting some stuff up to really see a big jump up in the price of sugar. But I'm also kind of concerned about what the, what do the crops look like when we get a higher price? So I guess talk about what you see happen there in the sugar market. Well, we've been bullish sugar market for quite a few months and markets. If you look at the, the sugar market, it's breaking out, totally breaking out. When we first talked about it. It was in a low 12 cent range. It's now pushing mid thirteens and it's, it is in a clear uptrend. And sugar, if anyone follows a sugar chart over any period of time, when that market starts trending, it's a trender. I mean, it just keeps going. It goes, and uh, the, every report we see, Casey, from anybody who covers the sugar market, they keep raising the deficit for next year, raising the deficit, raising the deficit. Because you said they keep looking at production. It keeps getting worse, getting worse, getting worse. And so, you know, what needs to happen here is we need to get production going again. Uh, but when, you know, it's good. It, it, sugar is one of those uh, sugar cane, you know, not the, not the sugar beets, but the sugar cane is one of those crops where you typically get three or four cuts before you go plant more acres. So it takes a while to get that going in areas where they grow, you know, the more the sugar cane kind of stuff like India, like Thailand, like Brazil. Now, places do sugar beets like in Europe, the U.S. and in Russia, you know, obviously you get the sugar up. God willing, with good weather, we're going to have enormous increased acres for sugar beets in the upcoming season. But then nonetheless, we still have to get to the other side for that increased supply. So we have a problem in the first half of 2020, uh, how high it needs to go to get that production going and to kind of back demand off a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly where that is, but I don't think it's the mid 13s. I think it's probably somewhere between 15 and 17 cents is probably where we need to go in order to do that. And, the, and usually commodity markets overshoot, right? We, whatever it should do, it does a little bit more. So the last time we had a big deficit, sugar ran to 20 cents. It wouldn't surprise us that we saw a 20 cent market, let's say by late spring, early summer, it wouldn't surprise us. We're not forecasting 20. We think 15, 15 cents is more appropriate, but sugar could easily spike to 20 on a, on a, on a supply pinch. Especially if um, you know if uh, there's any weather issues at all that develop in any country again, which they may, you know, yeah. the market's not. It's going to be very quick to jump on. This. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. So I, I, that's the one I'm watching the most. I think there's there's the volatility there is it's so extreme, especially if you move into a <clears throat> a La Nina phase, and, and especially with the, the sunspot activity that we're seeing, dry weather or extreme wet weather in key growing areas are going to have a, a big effect on what we see um, in the overall, in the overall marketplace. So good one to watch, man. I think that's going to be an exciting, exciting one to watch, but you got to have a crop first to, to go out and sell, even if you got big prices. So that, that's, that is my biggest, I kind of, I kind of, that's my worry, I guess, as, as we look down, down towards the future here. 
It's one of our favorite markets. It still is. I mean, obviously, it's not as good a deal today at 13 and a half as it was in the low to mid 12s, but it's still a market that we think has you know good upside here. And remember, the Brazilian real, we think, just made a major low. We broke the five-year low marginally here in late November and then immediately turned back up and turned over 24. That's what we call a breakdown failure, reversal higher technical buy signal. Whenever we've seen this pattern develop, uh, is usually been a harbinger for some important bullish turning points. And so if the real has in fact turned up, yeah. which we think it has, sugar is a huge beneficiary of that trend on top of the supply deficit. So right on. good deal. All right. Let's talk about wheat real quick and then we'll, we'll, we'll close it down here. So if I'm looking at the wheat market right now, the European wheat market has just been getting, not the wheat market, but, but the planting and harvesting areas of that. So you know, we're looking at, I was in Ukraine last week and, and the wheat fields looked good. They had planted. I mean, there was some, there was some good wheat out there that was planted, but Eastern Europe is really struggling right now to get a, the wheat harvested and B uh, during wheat harvest, they had a hard time getting a harvest and B now they're having a hard time getting it planted. Um, and they've kind of passed that window now and they're, they're kind of where they're at. It looks like uh, Germany uh, winter wheat is down 7.1% as far as uh, acres planted from a year ago. And France has a similar problem because they had such wet conditions in key growing areas here and then all the way through the whole European Union. So talk about wheat and, and how it's stacked up to make maybe make some moves here um, at the first year. Well, we've had two years in a row where key exporters of wheat have had bad crops. Right. Um, and not only that, low quality bad crops. Um, and we had huge stocks going into this. So we had the ability for a couple of years to eat into that and still keep the thing going, but we are no longer there. Um, and so when we look at the Russian exports falling off a cliff, which it's not supposed right. to happen. Okay. Right. It's not supposed to happen. It already is. Even the Ukraine exports are falling off a cliff. Um, and, and now we're having all kinds of issues with the winter wheat crop here in the U.S., in terms of getting the acres planted, in terms of the, the way that it's going into dormancy, the stands, everything, the, the conditions are in, same thing in Europe, that, you know, we're, we're looking at more problems. And so at some point, <clears throat> you know, we, the, 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 the wheat market has to respond um, and, and it's starting to. And so uh, we don't see anyone in the world that has large wheat stocks to sell with Russia and Ukraine starting to come offline. And the U.S. and the U.S. exports continue to be a bright spot. Uh, and, and it will continue to be a price spot, especially for the higher quality, the KC wheat quality and the Minneapolis wheat quality. We're very bullish on those qualities of wheat that continue to go higher. And then really, when you look at it, the wheat market's been the leader in the grains by, you know, it's really been leading uh, independently because it's being driven by a different factor. Wheat's not being driven up because the Chinese are going to buy a bunch of wheat. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. It's being driven up because the export price, the global export price is going up a lot. And the U.S. follows that. Plain and simple, because we, you know, we don't use all the wheat we grow. We got to export it. So it's a, it's a very bullish market, and we don't see anything that can really get rid of this bullishness until we, you know, get the next winter wheat harvest coming next summer, and we have a whole, you know, long, long way to go to determine for what we're going to have. And so in the meantime, the market's going to have to, you know, think the worst now, and and then hope it turns out better later. And that's why we're getting the upward movement in, in wheat prices. So. Well, good stuff as usual, Sean. Love the conversation. Uh, wealth of knowledge. If folks want to reach out to Hackett Financial Advisors or see what you guys are all about, what's the best way to do that? Our website is Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, -T, advisors.com. 
our front page, homepage is all kinds of interviews, podcasts, and things to get a good idea what we do and to see if we might be able to help your listeners with their ag operations. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, and about anywhere else that you can find a podcast. Also check me out on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on at Moving Iron LLC. Also check out the Global Ag Network. That's where you can find my podcast as well as some other great podcasts as well. So, Sean, with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Uh, let's go move some iron, folks. Have a good one and a Merry Christmas. I'll talk to you guys probably next year. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century.